Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Episode 202 of the Bowery Boys. Tasting the history of the Lower East Side. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hello and welcome to the Bowery Boys. I'm Tom Myers, and today I'm flying solo for this show, at least for the next few minutes. Greg Young, my Bowery Boys partner in podcasting, has fled New York for San Francisco for the week, but he'll be back soon. In the meantime, today we have a very special guest who will be joining us shortly as we head off to experience the tastes of another era by spending some time with some of the oldest culinary institutions in the Lower East Side. The neighborhood boasts some iconic food and drink cellars today, from bialis and beer to knishes, pickles and pastrami, and lots more. But when exactly did these shops open? Who did they serve? How did their foods reflect their era? And how in the world are some of them still with us today? In a few minutes, I'll be joined by Sarah Lohman, an expert in food from other eras who leads tours, lectures, and writes on food history. We'll be exploring the neighborhood's delicious drinks and dishes chronologically, starting with the oldest surviving vendor and eating our way through time from the 1850s to the 1930s. And yeah, we have a lot to cover, so we'll try to keep it moving along, easily digestible. Best of all, these are all places that, as of today, you can still visit and experience for yourself. So join us as we taste our way through the history of the Lower East Side. Now I know that you're hungry and ready to go, but let's get situated briefly before we head off to the Lower East Side. I mentioned that today we'll be discussing the neighborhood's culinary institutions and food cellars. Where do we even start? If you haven't already, I'd suggest also listening to our episode number 183 from May of 2015, Orchard Street and the Lower East Side. In that show, Greg and I discussed the development of Orchard Street and the entire neighborhood, as it transformed in the 19th century from a farm, much of it the fruit orchard of James Delancey's estate, into streets with small homes. In the 1840s and 50s, many of these homes were inhabited by newly arriving Irish and German immigrants, who, to save or to make some money, would divide up the structures and live several families to a home. Soon these homes were replaced by the earliest tenement buildings, 
cheaply built apartment buildings that usually packed four families into each floor and only offered the most basic amenities and very little in the way of light and fresh air. Over the next few decades, nearly all the freestanding homes would be replaced by these tenement buildings as the Lower East Side became the most densely populated neighborhood in the country. Today, we'll be discussing how the neighborhood's demographics shifted during the 19th and early 20th centuries. The Irish and German immigrants were largely replaced in the late 19th century by Jews arriving from Eastern Europe, Russia, and elsewhere. Each of these groups, Irish, Germans, and Jews, brought with them their own cultures, customs, and languages. And they chose to live here for the most part because the rents were the cheapest they could find and because of the sense of community the neighborhood offered to new arrivals. Just as with the Italians settling into blocks a bit west of here, there was some comfort in hearing a familiar dialect, in attending religious services that were familiar, and in shopping and in eating foods that tasted like back home. By the dawn of the 20th century, the streets of the Lower East Side were packed with pushcarts selling Everything from fresh fruits and vegetables to clothing materials, shoes and housewares. Stores, too, lined the streets, but it was the pushcarts and their sellers hawking and haggling with customers. They gave these streets their energy. By the 1930s, these pushcarts were decidedly out of fashion and even an embarrassment to city leaders who were pushing through reforms meant to make New York into a more modern and more sanitary city. The carts had to go, and thus they were pushed indoors, in this case into the Essex Street Market, which opened under Mayor LaGuardia in 1940. Today, Sarah and I will be stomping around the Lower East Side, specifically looking for some of the remaining food sellers from this era that still operate in the neighborhood. As I mentioned, we'll work our way through chronologically. We'll be exploring their histories, but in the case of the first two stops, Greg has already recorded solo shows on those histories, and you can find those in the Bowery Boys archive. Today, instead, we're going to be really focusing on how these places reflect their periods, how they serve their communities, and how they've managed to survive into the 21st century. After all, so many stores just like them have long since disappeared. We'll start all the way back in the 1850s in an old Irish watering hole. But first, let's meet our co-host, someone who knows a great deal about New York's tasty culinary history, Sarah Lohman, author of the Four Pounds Flour blog and upcoming book, Eight Flavors. Sarah is waiting for us at Cooper Square next to Astor Place, just next to the statue of Peter Cooper himself. Let's head there now. All right, well, I'm on my way to Cooper Square. It's a beautiful, sunny afternoon. Hey, there she is, Sarah. Hi, good morning. Good morning, Sarah. How are you? I'm really well. How are you? Are you ready for our little tour? Oh, yeah. I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. I'm thirsty. Mm-hmm. Well, before we just uh, dive into the tour, yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into this crazy gig of being the go-to person for this particular culinary history of New York? Well, 
It started, I think, way back when I was in high school. When I was in, when I was 16, my mom said I was too old to sit around at home during the summers anymore. Mm-hmm. So she worked at a local museum and got me a job. And in this museum, which was dedicated to the 1840s in Ohio, we cooked. And it was the first time I got this sense that in different times people ate differently. And you could learn about Americans, about humans by consuming this food. Uh, I went to art school, and this idea of how we interpret the past kept coming back to me, and I ended up opening up a pop-up restaurant for my thesis. Oh, where was that? Uh, that was in Cleveland, the Cleveland Institute of Art. So you got the bug for historic gastronomy yeah. back in Ohio, and back how did Ohio. that bring you to New York? Well, I was graduating, and I had these interesting ideas about food and history. My professor said, you know, at the time, there isn't an audience for your ideas here. This was mm-hmm. over a decade ago now. They said, go to New York. And when I first came here, I was hired by New York Magazine. I was their video producer, and I worked primarily with Grub Street, right when Grub Street launched in 2006. And this is New York Magazine's food blog. Food blog, exactly. And it was right when they launched their whole website. And I got a chance to go get into some of the best kitchens and talk to the most amazing chefs in New York City. I quit after a couple years to start freelancing, and that's when I launched my blog, Four Pounds Flour, Historic Astronomy. And I just realized I had this unique perspective on food that I could look both at the past and see the connection to the present, and that excited me. And so you lead tours for the Tenement Museum? Yes. That are my, food tours? Yes. I'm an educator at the Lower East Side Tenement Museum, so I do all of their tours, but I also helped to develop their food programs, and I give food tours at the museum. Fantastic. So you know this neighborhood. You know uh, the the subject of today's podcast, which is exploring the food heritage of the Lower East Side. The Lower East Side. The Lower East Side, which I need to say, we did not come up with that. <laughs> that, is, that is the name of a food festival as well that Perfect. takes place. You're going to take us around today to some of these remaining restaurants and um, food establishments. But a question for you. You told me yes. to meet you at Cooper Square. Yes. When I think of the Lower East Side, I right. don't go to Astor Place. Right. You're thinking below Houston. Right. Right. Why Cooper Square? Why Cooper Square? Well, you, you asked me to give you this chronological timeline of food in the Lower East Side and right. of all the immigrant groups that came through here and lived around here. And I think that traditionally people think of the Lower East Side as Jewish food right. and Jewish culture. But there were people here before the Jewish immigrants mm-hmm. and there are people here afterwards. And in the introduction, I just mentioned the wave of Irish and then... And German immigrants. Exactly. So, yeah, people think that this is further north than the Lower East Side, but actually this whole neighborhood was considered the Lower East Side until the late 20th century when um, realtors wanted to rename some of the neighborhoods that had a negative connotation. Right. And Greg and I, in our podcast on St. Mark's Place, mm-hmm. a couple months ago, spoke about that, how it was the, the real estate developers who looked at the success of Greenwich Village and said, you know what, why don't we call this section over on the east side the East Village? Sounds so cute. <laughs> so here we are um, at Cooper Square. Where shall we go first? We're going to go to McSorley's. That's interesting for a number of reasons. <laughs> um, but first and foremost, because it's only 11 o'clock in the morning. Well, do you know if they're open? I, they are absolutely open. They open at 11 every day. Oh, just in time. I just walked past and noticed the front door was open, so they are ready for us. All right. And in terms of the 19th century and before, we're getting started late. Like, we should have had our bracer at 6 a.m., so we have really got some <laughs> catching up to do. Well, let's, uh, let's get moving. Okay, cool. Right, we're heading over to McSorley's, and we're going to push the door open. Cheers. All right. Well, we have somehow managed to get a table right in the front. 
It's a funny experience actually being in McSorley's. In the sun coming in, <laughs> sun coming in on our table. Relatively fresh. Fresh sawdust fresh on the sawdust floor. Fresh sawdust on the floor. It's as clean as it gets Hasn't in been here. solid. Nope. So if you've never been here before, it's a, it's a woody place, a huge old mahogany bar. The walls are absolutely packed, crammed with historic photographs, newspaper clippings, portraits, it's all about layers here. Everything is just layered, layered, layered. The newspapers, the portraits, the photographs, but also just like layers of, of hundred-year-old <laughs> dust, too. The, the sign in the window and above the door says McSorley's Old Ale House, mm-hmm. established 1854. Right. Although there are some disputes about that when you get into this sort of thing. Sure. And what the Landmark Preservation Report says, circa 1865. You know, the problem with drinking history is that a lot of people were too drunk to remember the details. <laughs> so you just, you know what, I props. They're, they're definitely the, one of the oldest institutions in the city and probably the absolute oldest. So McSorley's is an example of this first wave of immigrants opening up shops, in this case, obviously a bar. How would this be a typical establishment from the period, from the 1860s? Okay, so what is typical from the 1860s? I know that originally it was just this front room, not the back room, too. And I would say that something that's very typical of the 1860s is their amazing potbelly stove. That is one of the amenities of going to a bar. Coal's expensive in New York mm-hmm. in the 19th century. So the Probably bar today. is going to be warmer the bar than, is your, be warm. than your apartment. Yeah, it depends on how much money you got. But, I mean, you can get coal for free and a beer for five cents. So it seems mm-hmm. like a pretty good bargain. So, so the bar would have functioned as a sort of living room. Oh, absolutely. Oh, wait, I have something to show you. Can I can oh, I dig in my purse? Please. Okay, hang on. Okay, you are pulling up what looks like a map of the neighborhood. Yeah. So it's a map that has about, let's see. From Norfolk o- all the way over to the Bowery. Yeah. yeah, we're looking, and then this section is a little bit bigger. We're looking at maybe about 50 blocks total of the mm-hmm. Lower East Side. Um, do you notice how all these buildings are darkened in? Mm-hmm. All right, so every one... Are those apartments? Well, they are usually in the basements of apartment buildings, but what it's actually indicating are places where you can buy alcohol on the Lower East Side. Whoa. So okay, th- so we're looking at block after block. Every single block has a bunch of dots on it. Yeah, and it looks like... Look at this block. It's not very um, thick with bars, and there are still five bars in one block. And then check out some of these blocks by the Bowery. <laughs> Where, what is that, 20, 25 bars on just a single block near the Bowery? This map is from the early 1880s, so this is even 30 years after McSorley's is built. But you can see that it was, then 30 years later, we're still keeping real good company on the Lower East Side. So there was a lot of choice. You know, it's funny. I never thought about that way in terms of choice. I see it as almost necessity, too. Because if anyone has ever been in or lived in an apartment down here, you know Mm -hmm. that they're really small. They haven't gotten any bigger in the last 150 years. And this is in the 1880s. This is in the 1880s, but it's true the 1850s, 60s, 70s. So by the 1880s. Most of these would have been tenements with uh, with bars in their lower levels. Yeah, because the two immigrant groups moving here in the middle of the 19th century were both big drinking cultures. The Germans start coming in the 1840s with all the sort of political tumultuousness going on back in Germany before it's unifying. And the Irish start coming in big numbers right after the famine hits in 1846. So by the 1850s, there are big numbers of both Germans and Irish that are coming into this neighborhood. But when I think of an Irish bar and a German bar, I think of them differently, right? I think of one as a place where you definitely drink and the other a place where you might also eat. Yeah, and I would actually say that those aren't the biggest differences. So when you look at a map like this, I mean, how different does this look to you than a New York City block today? Well, 
there are certainly blocks in the East Village and Lower East Side where you have three or four bars on the same block. Okay. What about if you add in restaurants? Right. And what where about you can buy beer? Where you right. can buy beer. And what about when you add in coffee shops? Because in most Some of the do coffee shops, serve wine. That's true. It's right. And even if you added in the Starbucks, I think it's important to remember that the same thing you see in a Starbucks today and what New Yorkers are doing in that space is the same thing that New Yorkers were doing in bars in the 19th century. Without the Wi-Fi. Without the Wi-Fi, but they are still there working reading, uh, having business meetings, being on dates, hanging out with their friends and family, listening to music, doing all those same things in a modern context, just doing it differently in the 19th century. Okay, but here at the bottom, I see there's a little key. Yeah. What is that what does that say? Where lager reigns? So it's denoting by the shape of the building, whether they are lager beer saloons or what's the other one? Liquor bar? Liquor saloons. Liquor saloons. Mm-hmm. So that's essentially... Mark thus. Uh, the liquor saloons are rectangles. The lager beer bars are circles. And that's essentially denoting different cultural institutions. Because one of the big differences is that the Irish bars were centered around um, hard alcohol, like whiskey. Mm-hmm. And the German bars were lager beer bars mm-hmm. um, and so we've got a big difference in alcohol consumption between these two institutions right so once the hard stuff once the beer and not only that lager is new to america in the 19th century and it has about half as much alcohol as the ales that we were drinking not in particularly great volume in the 19th century but ales about eight to twelve percent alcohol and lager is about four to six uh-huh. so it's a much much lower alcohol beer Okay, so we have a difference in the alcohol that's actually served in these establishments. How was the difference in terms of the clientele and who was frequenting these places? Was it just the people upstairs? Um, In some ways, yes. I think that the biggest clientele for a lot of these bars were the people upstairs. Think of it like a bodega. That's the New York City word for a corner store. Right. You just did when you run out of something, you run downstairs. You run downstairs. And when I moved to New York from Ohio, one of the things I couldn't fathom is how every single corner could support four bodegas. (laughs) And that's because we're a very localized culture. We don't walk far. So there are other reasons that someone might come to a bar. Maybe it's a proprietor. Maybe it's uh, something about the community. Um, A lot of the German bars would host clubs too you could rent out a back room so mm-hmm. there were other things that brought community and the, right so the germans were bringing with them they're importing their their beer drinking culture which includes family and includes yep. meals as well yes food and yeah most importantly you can confirm that i am sitting in mcsorley's right now right, right. I yes here. i see you, you i'm see drinking me. with you you're drinking with me we're in mcsorley's yes so If this were the 19th century, I would not be in this bar unless I was a prostitute. And I can confirm for you that at least right now, I'm not a prostitute. (laughs) So that is a big shift um, in the modern era. In fact, McSorley's did not allow women into the bar until the 1970s. And only then, after a lawsuit. After a lawsuit, yeah. Because it was a traditional Irish bar, and traditionally, women did not go into Irish bars, and women did not go into American bars unless you're a woman of ill repute. That is a tremendous difference between the Irish, the Americans, and the Germans. The Germans taught us how to have a good time. They had the first drinking establishments where not just men, but women, and on the weekends, children would also be in these bars, too. It was really a family event. It was centered around a community, and that is something you can still see at beer gardens around New York City, too. The kids are running around. You're sitting with the adults having a beer. That is a German lager beer saloon of the 1860s. So McSorley's established 1854. Ish. Ish. So says a sign, perhaps in the 1860s. A fun example of an Irish bar. Are there examples in the neighborhood, in the Lower East Side or lower today's East Village, that are German bars from the period? There are a couple, but they are very contemporary. They've opened in the past decade. On one hand, the German culture 
you know, is just so old that the German community moved on to other neighborhoods. Right. So one thing I want to explore today as we're running around from spot to spot, why are these places still open? Why is McSorley still open? Is it because of something that happened in its history that sort of elevated it in a way from just a sort of normal bar to something more iconic? Mm-hmm. Is it because is it because of something else? I have a theory yeah. about this place. Love to hear it. And I feel like it became... Um, because of the atmosphere inside that we're enjoying right now, because of a number of things, something of an icon. Right. In the 1910s, uh, McSorley started to become popular with bohemians and Mm -hmm. artists that were walking a few blocks east from Greenwich Village. And one of them was a painter, John Sloan, who Mm -hmm. painted from 1912 to 1930 a series of five different paintings of McSorley's. That's so cool. The one that I have a, a printout here is called McSorley's Bar. We'll, we'll post it on the website. It's amazing to look at this painting today because you see this sort of moody, dark oil painting of apron servers and bartenders with bow ties pouring up pints for the thirsty customers. And I think you'll agree. It looks the it same. It looks exactly the same. There's a hundred years less grime in this painting <laughs> than in the reality, but it looks pretty much exactly and even looks like the same time of day. You can see the daylight coming in through the windows there. Right. This was painted in nineteen twelve. Mm-hmm. It could be two thousand sixteen. Yeah. In the nineteen forties, Joseph Mitchell was writing about McSorley's for the New Yorker magazine. That was republished in nineteen forty three as McSorley's Wonderful Saloon. Mm-hmm. So by the forties I think McSorley's was already famous. Even before this, um, Harrigan and Hart were these very famous musical writers from the 19th century, and their first big hit was called The McSorley's. And it was about this bar, and it was about the people of this neighborhood. And mm-hmm. it was written by two Irish men and was kind of admittedly like racistly Irish, too. Like It played into a lot of these stereotypes, but was also playing for an Irish audience. And I think that even that, as early as that, is what started to make this bar iconic. So it's always been famous. Pretty much, it seems like, right? And so just longevity. It's managed to stay and stay and stay. And I I can't imagine a New York City without it. Well, we're almost living in a New York without it. Because look at this article from the Times, 1956. The headline is, Future is Bleak for Saloon in East 7th Street. And it's all about a 1956 slum clearing act that was slated to bulldoze uh, the entire block, several blocks around here, including... McSorley's. This takes us back to the last episode that Greg and I did together, episode 200 on Jane Jacobs. And of the various quote-unquote slum clearance projects that were happening around the city in the 1950s uh, that affected the village. And the same thing was planned for this area. And fortunately, it didn't come to fruition. All right, well, we have to keep moving, so we're going to sadly leave McSorley's. We've got to finish our beers. Okay, we'll finish our beers, Mm -hmm. and then we'll head out the door. So where are we off to next? We're going to head down to Houston Street, so we're going to go about seven blocks south. All right, let's go there. Okay. Before we go, you got to finish your beer. Okay, so we're through the swinging doors and walking down 7th Street towards 2nd Avenue. Sunny New York afternoon. So where are we heading? Uh, we're going to go down to Houston Street, and we're going to go to Katz's Delicatessen. After the Germans and the Irish immigrants started moving to Brooklyn and Queens and uptown, this neighborhood then turned over, and we got a whole new wave of immigrants coming in. And these guys were mostly from Eastern Europe and Russia, although they were coming from 
you know, all sorts of modern day countries, different towns, different cultures, different dialects, different foods. So there was a lot of diversity within this community. And also beyond that, too, there were Sephardic Jews coming from Turkey and modern day Greece and also Romaniac Jews who were coming from Greece. So all of these people, all these cultures, they all brought with them their own eating customs, and that translated into different kinds of, of restaurants and food cellars. When did Katz's open? According to Katz's, 1888. They were a very old food institution. Okay, so here's a perfect sign. Let's take a swing by Moisha's Bakery window. Mm. So we're walking up to Moisha's Kosher Bake Shop at the corner of 7th Street and 2nd Avenue, and there's a big display window. We're looking in at all kinds of yummy things. Mm -hmm. uh, I see some challah bread over here. Mm -hmm. I see some babka. I see some hamantashen, poppy seed, and raspberry. There's just some delightful chocolate things. Who knows what that is? Mm. So this is a kosher bake shop. Right. There would have been many of these yeah, along 2nd Avenue. Absolutely. And not only uh, along 2nd Avenue, all over this neighborhood, this is one of the, the remnants of this older Jewish population. And the next block up, you've got the B&H Dairy Restaurant, which is the last dairy restaurant on the Lower East Side, too, or technically East Village today. And as we continue walking along, I want to talk about B&H Dairy. Yeah. Dairy Bar. What does dairy mean? So I think that most Americans are more familiar with the delicatessen, giant layers of deli meats. Delicatessens mm -hmm. actually started with the Germans. In that German immigration, there was also a German-Jewish immigration. Delicatessen, like, essentially means uh, little good things to eat in German. And so they were the original takeout places in New York in the 1860s. You so went there. You'd go to a delicatessen to pick up prepared foods prepared and bring food. it home and serve your family. Meats, potato salad, mm -hmm. pickles, egg salad, things like that. And some of those institutions were kosher. So the next wave, the Eastern European Jewish immigrants, moved into this neighborhood because there was already a Jewish culture. There were synagogues and there were places to get kosher food. Okay. And that's how the delicatessen became a Jewish institution, because Jewish immigrants came into this neighborhood, took over the old German-run businesses, and then made it into this sort of national Eastern European Jewish culture. But what is dairy? Delicatessens today are the meat half of a kosher meal. So when you're eating kosher, if you are observantly Jewish, you're not going to mix meat and dairy. There's lots of other rules in there, but that is the primary one that most people are familiar with. So there are two types of restaurants traditionally to accommodate for whether you're having a meat meal or a dairy meal. Dairy also includes foods that are known as parv, which are eggs and fish. Mm -hmm. So we have the delicatessen, which is where you get your meat meal, but traditionally there was a dairy counterpart, which would be something like a dairy restaurant, like B&H, and we're going to visit, not B&H, we're not going to have a sit-down meal. We are going to visit another institution that was known as an appetizing store. It's, it was a place where you bought things, pre-made foods, that were part of your dairy meal. So, in summary, we're heading to a delicatessen right now yeah. that uh, serves meat at a dairy restaurant. Yep. You could not get meat. No meats. And at an appetizing store, you could also not get meat. Right. And Katz's is kosher or is not kosher? You know, a lot of delicatessens they call kosher style now. As food comes to America, it continues to evolve. And a lot of Jewish people decided to no longer keep kosher after coming to this country. Part of it being was a, just too hard or inconvenient? that was part of it. But it was also just this choice of, at the time, being Jewish was not seen as being American, as being synonymous with American. Mm -hmm. We were a Protestant culture. And American culture, to be honest with you, is kind of secular as well. So some people made the choice to become less 
religious as part of their identity becoming more American. So that yeah. translated into the Reuben sandwich, essentially. <laughs> right, in like, the Reuben sandwich, because you would have meat and dairy mix. Right, you put cheese on there, you put your Russian dressing on there. And also, not just because the Jewish community was eating differently, but because a lot of the reasons these restaurants survived and became popular is because they appealed to a broader American audience. Mm-hmm. So they're reaching out beyond just the Jewish neighbors in the area to a more mainstream audience. Yeah, exactly. All right. We're just turning down First Avenue now. We're getting closer. Um, And here's what I recall about eating at Katz's. I'm going to bring this up before we get inside because I know that things can get a little stressful when you get inside. (laughs) There's like a right way to visit Katz's just like with McSorley's where you have to get two beers every time you order. At Katz's, there is a very specific way uh, to visit and order your food. Yeah. So, it's, And woe is the person who screws up. A woe is the person. You will be woed. It's true. <laughs> um, so here's what you do. Katz's works this really particular way. When you walk in the door, someone's going to hand you a ticket. And it doesn't matter if you're eating or not or paying or not. You take that damn ticket mm-hmm. and you do not lose it. You put it in the most secure spot on your body. Okay, so we're going to pay attention when we go inside and we have our ticket handed to us. Right. And we will follow the directions. We're looking at the vastness that is Katz's Deli. It's just as, it's got fairly high ceilings, but in a way I would describe it as low slung. It's a cavernous space. Cavernous. Fluorescent lighting. Yeah. Long tables. Packed. Packed. And people pushing their way up to the silver <laughs> counter where they there seem, are men. Uh, they seem fairly orderly today. I'm okay, kind but of, they're lined up. They're, they're lined up. up. They're lined up. Um, those are the employees you hear shouting to each other, which, of course, like most of these institutions, 50 years ago, these would have been like all young Jewish boys. And today we're talking like Dominicans, yeah, Caribbeans, like it's a whole different immigrant population working in a lot of these old institutions. Right. So it's the turnover of the neighborhood. And in terms of the customers, too, you have some locals, I take it, but it looks like it's... You've definitely got some locals. I can, you can pick them out here. And you've definitely got some tourists. Like One right. of the reasons I love this place is because it is an iconic tourist destination, but the food is good and the experience is great. And so it's a place where you can come as a tourist and you're actually mixing with something that local people do. All right. So how do we do this? We're, we're going to share a sandwich. Can we get a pastrami sandwich? You up us, for that? I'm going to get us a little tasting plate and we're going to get some celery soda too. Have you ever had a celery? Never. All right. We're getting a celery. Okay. Where, uh, where do we go? I see lots of different lines. Yeah. So we're kind of snuggled in here at the grill, which is where you're going to get your sausages, your knuckwurst, your breakfast food, your bagel and cream cheese. And this over here is actually where they're making their money. You make a lot of profit off of a, a plate of eggs and you don't make a lot of profit over a deli sandwich. Meat's expensive. Meat's really expensive and that's one of the big issues with running a deli and that's why a lot of delis are closing nationally now because it's a very very thin profit margin for them. We're going to just be getting meat so we have to head down. So next stand over is where you get your sandwiches. You can see all the sandwich guys lined up all the the countermen and the guys that are the most experienced they're closer to the door. Because they're going to get more people. They can go through more quick. They're going to make more money. The guys that are newer are going to be down at the other end. The um, traffic's a little lighter. Okay, and we have our little orange tickets in hand. Yeah. Uh, what, what will we do with these? So we hand them to the counterman? Every station you go to, whether it's breakfast or sandwich or drinks and fries or desserts, you hand them this ticket and they take a channel marker and they tally up your order. You hang on to it because you pay when you leave. you got to give it to the cashier when you get out of here. And if you lose your ticket? 50 bucks. 
No exceptions. No exceptions. Don't lose the ticket. All right. Let's get some food. Okay. So, you want coleslaw? Uh, can I get a celery? How much is the coleslaw? Uh, How much is the coleslaw? Forget yeah. it. We're going to share it. We're going to share the coleslaw. That looks delicious. See, that's what I mean by kosher style. She's got a big old, like, there's pastrami, there's Swiss cheese, and then there's Russian dressing on that. So you right. can't mix so meat and dairy. Not kosher. not kosher. And, of course, at the end of this counter, you can go get a big slab of cheesecake, too. And so, not kosher. This is very Americanized Jewish food. So you just poured some celery. It looks like um, ginger ale, slightly flat ginger ale. Listen. Yeah, give it a taste. Hmm. Hmm. It's sweet. Kind of tastes like flat ginger ale. A little bit, but mm-hmm. give it another whirl. Tastes like celery. Tastes like celery. Yeah. But also it's like celery ginger soda. ale. Yeah, it's celery soda. I find it really, it's a unique taste. I find it really refreshing. And I think that you're going to find that it goes really well with these deli meats. All right. So we have a plate here, brisket, corned beef, and pastrami. Yeah, we're going to go in order. Okay. okay. What, so there's an order. There's an order to this because each one of these gets more and more complicated as far as preparation. Okay. So the simplest one is the brisket. Cows don't have collarbones. So all that weight is, instead of being supported by a bone, is supported by a muscle. Okay. Um, and that muscle is the brisket. And so when you've got muscles that support a lot of weight in animals, they're really, really tough which means you just got to cook them at a low temperature for a long time. And then, even though it takes more time to cook a tough meat, they deliver a lot of flavor, though, afterwards. So we have a white plate with three types of meat, just slivers, really, of each type of meat. This brisket is the lightest brown. It's kind of a tan color. Yep. And we have some mustard. I take it I'm not going to put the mustard on? I mean, I think on your first time you should just enjoy each meat without the mustard, unadorned. Mm-hmm. Mm. Brisket's good today. Mm. Simple. Very mild. Pot roast, mild. Mm-hmm. Shall we move on? Shall we go mm-hmm. to round two? More complicated. More complicated. We have corned beef. And this is a bright red. Still a mm-hmm. sliver. Mm-hmm. Looks like it's kind of the same shape, but um, a bright, bright tongue red. Corned beef is also a brisket cut, but to further break down all of that, the, the toughness of the muscle, it's essentially pickled. It's brined, either dry brined with a salt crust or usually today it's injected with salt water. And also a mixture of spices go in there too. Um, things like mustard seeds, peppercorns, it'll be a proprietary blend. Um, so it will sit and pickle for maybe a week before then it's cooked like a brisket, low, slow, wet. And then we get this. Mmm. Mmm. That's kind of a smoky flavor. It's got that salty. Kind of, yeah, salty and smoking kind of falls apart. Mm-hmm. So then we have the pastrami. Pastrami can be a brisket cut. Traditionally, it's a navel cut. So it's coming from a more tender part of the cow in the first place. And then first it is pickled. So you notice that in the center there, it has the same coloring as a corned beef. So it's Right, been so it's red. It's, again, a right. sliver that's red. But around it, it's encrusted with something dark. Is that yeah. pepper? That is one of the things that it is. So when you're making pastrami, first you brine it like you do a corned beef. Mm -hmm. Then you crust it. And again, this is a proprietary spice blend. So there is pepper, but there is also things like coriander, mustard seed, brown sugar, all kinds of other stuff. You put that crust on, and then you also smoke a pastrami. 
and then you finally cook it low and slow. So it's going through two steps before it gets cooked. And what do you think of it? Mm. That that's my winner. That's my clear yeah, winner. It's extraordinary. The pastrami at Katz is. Here, I'll spit this one. I'll no, spit no, this no, one no, with no, you. I can. You want it? It melts in your mouth. It's so flavorful. It is the best. Oh my God. Pastrami and rye. You cannot go wrong. And now try a sip of that celery. Mm. Why it just cuts the fat? It just cuts the fat. <laughs> it's the perfect accompaniment. Mm. Okay, we gotta keep moving. Uh, we did this chronologically, by the way, but we did it out of order in terms of how a Jewish meal would go. Mm. Traditionally, if you're gonna have both dairy and meat, you have dairy first and then meat second. However, neither of us are Jewish, so I think we're just gonna go for it. So and, we're hitting dairy next. Yeah, we're gonna go to the dairy meal because Katz's was founded in 1888, and the place that we're going to, Russ and Daughters, was established 1914. So we're heading forward in time. We will just settle the bill because mm-hmm. we do have our tickets, right? You have your ticket? You th- I hope you took mine. I, I think Wait. you took. You got, got two. I've got two. Okay. I've got two. We've okay. got two tickets. We're going to settle They'll the bill. They'll let us out. They won't throw us, us in jail. <laughs> and we'll head to Russ and Daughters down the street after this. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC. Hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show. Sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. 
fugitive slaves, and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And now, back to the Lower East Side. All right, well, welcome back. We have made it outside, back onto Houston Street. They let us out of Katz's. They, they let us exit. We had our tickets. <laughs> we had our tickets. We're free. You know, and again, the question of why Katz's has survived, is it iconic? You know, is it like McSorley's that it's iconic? It certainly holds a place in pop culture. Tourists know about it, like you pointed out. It's also been featured famously in... Movies. In pop culture, like when Harry met Sally, of yeah. course. So undoubtedly, people come for these reasons as right. well. So in a way, Katz is, is standing in and representing New York City for people. It's an yeah. icon, a representation of New York. Yeah, I wouldn't call McSorley's a, a necessarily a tourist destination, but uh, Katz's definitely is. But it's also a place where New Yorkers are still going to eat. And I think the big reason why it survived is because the food connects to a culture outside of Jewish culture. Uh, this isn't a Jewish neighborhood anymore. You know, Jewish Americans are now three, four, or five generations American. So although people will go for nostalgia, the sort of New York nostalgia, the sort of Jewish American nostalgia, you don't have to be Jewish eat at a deli. The food has transcended that culture. So we're walking just one block west on Housen Street toward our next um, appetizing destination, mm-hmm. and we're walking past some construction. Much of the rest of the block that Kat sits on along Houston Street uh, has been demolished. Yes. Uh, it is a new real estate venture. All the other buildings in the block were bought. Katz's is the last holdout, which is kind of amazing because they could have made a lot of money to sell that business, but they decided not to. But that is the new Lower East Side. You're seeing older buildings um, demolished, destroyed to build condo after condo after condo. So people are really sort of anxious about how the neighborhood is changing, too. Now we're standing in front of Russ and Daughter's appetizers. Yes. Shall we head inside? Oh, yeah. Let's eat. Okay, so we've just pushed in uh, the white-tiled floor. It's a beautiful spot. Looks like it hasn't changed in much of a century. We have a fish counter on the left with different spreads, but on the right when we first walk in is the bakery section. Uh, There's fresh-baked desserts and also some nuts and dates. Explain what's going on. Okay, so when you come to Russ and Daughters, it's normally not going to be as empty as this because on Saturdays, Sundays, the counter lines are six deep. And so whenever you come in, you got to come in, you got to take a number first mm-hmm. and get your place in line because you're going to be waiting here a long time on a weekend. And a Saturday and a Sunday, it's because this is, for us today, we see this as brunch food. Kind of. You know, it... <sighs> Okay, we're talking about why these places survive. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons this place has survived is because they've also transcended the idea of Jewish food. No one knows what an appetizing store is anymore, but like what they do is they sell the best possible version of all of the things that you see here. The best fish, the best caviar is one of their specialties. They're getting the best. So Martha Stewart's going to come up in here, and she's going to talk about how amazing it is. But at the same time, this is also like the place that the people who live in the blocks around here will get their bagels on the weekends, and they have really good bagel sandwiches. So it's serving both the role of 
high-end food store. One of the times I was in here, I was standing in line next to Jake Gyllenhaal, who was buying enormous tins of their caviar. But also, so we're talking very high quality, very merchandise. high quality merchandise and bagel sandwiches. So we have a lot of smoked fish here. Yeah, we had smoked fish. We got cream cheese of all different types. We've got caviar here. Come on down. Let's take a peek. Okay, so we've come to the caviar, the roe. French chop roe, we got white fish, and you've got goat cheese, you've got tofu cheese, you've got all natural Trout, cream mousse, cheese. Veggie cream Their cheese. cream cheese is special. It's um, tangy because it's fermented. And the next counter, we got our salmon. Go over there to the salmon. Maybe we'll see one of the guys cutting it. Yeah, I'm used to going to the salmon counter in the grocery store. Yeah. But this is totally different. There's like seven or eight different kinds of salmon. Irish, Scottish, Norwegian. We've got actually my favorite pastrami salmon, which is smoked salmon that has a spice crust similar to the pastrami we had over in Katz's. And when they slice this, here, go over there. Let's see if it, yeah, yeah, there we go. Do you see how they're slicing it just paper thin? And so it's this delicately smoked salmon. Like prosciutto. Yeah, like prosciutto that you you just take it and you're going to take it off that paper and drop it into your mouth and it just melts away on your tongue. All right, we've worked our way down. We're, we seem to be in the herring section. Yeah, yeah, this is like pre-made salads. they got amazing chopped liver, too, egg salad. But they also have their herring fillets and like a curry sauce and a mustard dill sauce. So they're changing the recipe up a little bit, too. And then, of course, the sweets counter. You know, they've got the best chocolate toffee-covered matzah for Passover. They've got babka, chocolate, and cinnamon. they got macaroons. So in terms of the history of Russ and Daughters, though, it has a fascinating story. It opened in 1914. Yep, in a location on Orchard Street around the corner. Right around the corner. It's been here in this spot on Houston Street since 1920. It's been in the same family that entire time. And it's especially notable as well, given the and daughters in its title, for bringing in the daughters to the business. Yeah, yeah. Joel Russ, he was the founder. and didn't have any sons. He had three daughters. And, of course, they all worked in the store. It was a family business. And so he decided to make this and daughters. As far as anybody knows, it is the first business in the country to be and daughters, as opposed to and sons and brothers and cousins and whatevers. And uh, people said that he was actually going to, his business was going to fail because he dared to do that. But it's become an institution because of it. And now it's still in the family. Nikki Russ Fetterman is one of the primary family members that runs it. And only about 1% of businesses make it into the fourth generation of being family run. So it's kind of incredible that the store has stayed with one family for now over a century. Bringing this back to the question of how is this business, it's been around for more than 100 years, how is it still open today? How is it still relevant when other appetizing stores have disappeared? Yeah, this is the last, um, where there used to be dozens on the Lower East Side. It's, again, a nostalgia, but transcending Jewish-American food, but offering the best product available, but also the passion of the family who keeps coming back to the business. And they haven't made a change to this business in a really good long time, I think since the 1970s, until Nikki Russ Fetterman decided to open, well, a second location. Do you want to see it? Oh, is it nearby? Yeah, yeah, it's just around the corner on Orchard Street. Let's go. So we pushed our way past the fish counters, out of Russ and Daughters, and turned down Orchard Street, deeper into the heart of the Lower East Side, and along a stretch where new luxury developments sit next to old tenement buildings. Seeing these new developments, seeing the buildings that have been knocked down and new luxury apartments built, does make me think about the volatility of the real estate in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. and maybe another factor in terms of the longevity of these businesses uh, that we haven't discussed yet. That being obviously, you know, maybe some of these old time establishments 
own their buildings. Absolutely. How do you survive as a deli or an appetizing shop or maybe a little store like a candy store or a pickle shop on the Lower East Side when these lots are selling for more money than I can wrap my brain around? I mean, cats to survive because they own that piece of land. Back middle of the 20th century when real estate was cheap here because no one lived here and property values were rock bottom, the businesses that were here, some of them made decisions to buy the buildings. People probably thought they were crazy in the mm-hmm. 60s, 70s, and 80s. It turns out to be quite fortuitous. But yeah, it ended up being a really good decision, which that means that they have more of a bargaining chip and keeping their businesses around on the Lower East Side. And we continue south on Orchard Street. We're going past some fabric stores, some shops selling ribbons, spools of ribbons in the window caftans, leather, orchard corsets. Um, This whole street used to be known as Underwear Row. When this neighborhood was less residential in the 20th century, it became a big shopping district, and you got designer discounts for cheap. So these couple blocks of Orchard Street are sort of the last holdouts with those sorts of businesses. We're almost all the way down to Delancey Street, but what is this on our right? It's Russ and Daughters. The menu here. Um, Yeah, this is the Russ and Daughters Cafe. So this just opened... In 2014, this is the first sort of addition that they've added to the store since the 1970s. And whereas at the appetizing store, you you buy stuff, but it's just a counter space. There's no sit-down space. This is their proper sit-down cafe. It's packed at brunch, packed for dinner. You can get yourself a cocktail. You can get yourself an egg cream. And then all of their food is made with their product. Just peeking into the interior, we see that the aesthetic of the place matches that of Houston Street as well. Um, white tiled floors, there are servers in their white overcoats. It's been designed just so. Yeah, this is, but this is constructed nostalgia. That store over there looks the way it does because nobody changed it, and then after a certain point, nobody wants to change it because that's mm-hmm. what it is. This has definitely been made to aesthetically match and even push this sort of nostalgic ideal of the soda shop of like Ratners, you know, these businesses that have been lost here. They're trying to not only bring them back, but reinvent them, reach beyond Judaism in a way. Mm-hmm. This is, it's just the place you're going to go to for brunch. You might even not even have a cultural association, or you might, and you're glad to see a business like this back. All right. Well, I'm afraid that we're going to have to wrap this up, um, and we're doing that nearby. Yeah. And I'm hoping that we're going to end with something sweet. Okay. So we're going to go to one of my favorite stores. We're going to go to Economy Candy. It's just around the corner on Rivington Street, and it is between Ludlow and Essex. Now, Economy Candy dates back to the 1930s. Right. Did it open as a candy store? No. According to the story, it was Economy Shoes. Opened by a man named Moisha Cohen, and uh, the Cohen family, they're Roman Jewish. So the Lower East Side has the only Greek Jewish synagogue, or Kila, Kila Kadosha Yanana, in the Western Hemisphere. So it's a very unique community that was in this neighborhood. So 1930s, a shoe store decides to operate a candy counter as well? So they had a candy counter, and they realized that the candy sold easier than the shoes. So just after World War II, they became Economy Candy. It's now currently owned by the founder's son, Jerry. And Jerry's son left his Wall Street job a couple years ago, and now he's running the candy store too. Third generation. All right, we're at Ludlow and Rivington, and we're walking just over to the Economy Candy awning. Let's get some candy. Mm, Delicious. Smells good. You smell the candy smell wafting over you. 
So all the sweets are essentially bread-free. So you've got your chocolatey, coconutty macaroons. You've got your chocolate-covered matzah out. You've got your marshmallow twist kosher. You've got your little fruit things. You've got all these desserts that aren't going to break kosher for Passover. And this is just an overwhelming smell Candy, of goodness of that goodness. comes over you when you walk in. And even though they're featuring, you know, this is the Jewish Lurie side, I noticed that this is Joyba. This is the local Hava brand, too, that makes all these sweets. This is uh, started in Brooklyn. I think they still, uh, they're definitely still manufactured in New York State. It's not just about Jewish candy here. They import candy from all over the world. They have candy from every generation. What I love most about it is it doesn't matter when you grew up. The, your favorite candy will be here. Do you want to mm. see mine? Yes, please. Come on. Oh, my God. Candy cigarettes? Candy cigarettes. What a horrible candy. They were my favorite when I was growing up. Now, you notice, too, they don't just have one time. They have the chocolate cigarettes. They have the bubblegum ones. I didn't even know they still made these. And then, me neither. How is that possible? <gasps> I love the candy ones, the ones that taste like sweet chalk. Those are mine. <laughs> and right underneath, we've got the lips. Yep. At the top, we have Pop Rocks. They sell 1950s candies. Look over here is their big import section, so you get expat shopping here. I'm sorry, I'm a bit hypnotized by the presidents of the United States, Pez dispensers. Ooh, do they have Polk? <gasps> I think they do. <laughs> oh, my God. This no. Is a, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's Polk. He's right there. Oh, my God. There's Polk. This is the Polk and Zachary Taylor set, not their bestseller. And they're Millard, Millard Fillmore. Fillmore. Everyone's favorite these... president. <laughs> Look at the jellied, salted fish. Candy pills. This is more of a nod Turkish delight, towards yeah. the Romanot and then Middle Eastern Jewish populations that also lived in this neighborhood, that you're seeing Middle Eastern candies. And then there's one Middle Eastern sweet in general that in America is more strongly associated with Jewish culture. Do you know what I'm talking about? Come on back. Take me you. back. Take me away. And we're back by the Halva. All right, so this brand, Joiva, this was founded in New York in the 1940s. Right, and these are blocks, like mm -hmm. um, and brown, bars brown and bars mm -hmm. of this halva. Is, halva is a candy. Halva is a sweet, a confection, let's say. You see these um, these jars, actually, look like yeah. peanuts containers. This is a non-hard version of this. It's Halva is sweetened tahini. It's sweetened sesame paste. Oh. And so you can spoon it like peanut butter and eat it on a sandwich. Or you get it in these blocks. These are cooked with egg whites that give it this particular sort of crumbly, crunchy quality. And made into kind of a loaf. And yeah, made sliced into a loaf. off like fudge. Exactly. You get the little bars, the king-size bar for a buck. Or you get one of these bulk ones. You've got the classic vanilla. You've got the marble. And then down here you've got, this is like covered in toffee. And that's chocolate covered, which is a super American thing to do. You're not going to see that in the Middle East. Halva is all over the Middle East and Mediterranean and North Africa. So would they have been selling halva back in the 1930s? And before. I'm sure it actually was here at the turn of the century. It would have come with Jewish immigrants from the Middle East. They started selling it on the streets, and people thought it was delicious. So everybody in this neighborhood started eating it. So in America, it lost its association with the Middle East, and it just became this Jewish New York food. We're going to get the, the, the Brooklyn brand, but they also sell halva from Israel, and it is different in texture, different in flavor. It, it, there's a lot of variation. So, so we're going to get the bar that's already packaged. Just we're some, not going to get the loaf. No, we're not, we don't need that much halva. And this is marble, so this is like chocolate and vanilla swirled. Let's get it. Okay. Passing some serious peeps. Yes. And I do mean peeps. All right, well, we're back out on the street um, in front of Economy Candy, and I think, you know, looking for a place to open up our halva bar, yep. maybe we can um, 
maybe we can indulge in the Essex Street yeah, market. Let's go to Essex Streets. Not to mention there's that Puerto Rico coffee. Yeah, it's got Ronnie Sue's chocolates. It's got Saxaby cheeses. It's got Luna Fruit Brothers Fruit Plaza for great groceries. We headed across Essex Street into the Essex Street Market, today located in one of the four brick buildings constructed by Mayor LaGuardia in 1940 to get the pushcarts out of the nearby streets. And the market remains open today, even as a new Essex Street Market is constructed across Delancey Street as part of the new Essex Crossing development. All right, well, we're inside the Essex Street Market. We found a table here. We're enjoying a coffee and a tea. Yeah. And... I've got this Halva bar in front of me, king size. Let's just try this. Oh, it's crumbly. Yeah. It's like a flaky, crumbly, crunchy. It has a really unique texture. I'm going to take a bite. Mm. Fudgy. Mm-hmm. Mm. Peanut mm. buttery for me. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But it's not peanut butter. It's a, that's no, that's the tahini. Mm. The tahini, exactly. Mm. Okay, so we're at the end of our tour, sadly, Sarah. Sadly. Um, What a nice, sweet ending that Mm -hmm. this is. Mm -hmm. However, if you're heading out to the Lower East Side, trying a tour like this on your own, Mm -hmm. there are several other places that you should swing by that we didn't have a chance to stop into. Definitely. uh, That are even from this era, Mm -hmm. such as Jonas Schimmel. Yeah, Jonas Schimmel's. It's a knishery. You got to get yourself in there. You try their potato or their kasha knishes. Uh, those are the old recipes, or they also have running specials, so you might get, like, a pizza knish one day, too. And that's just a couple blocks farther west from Russ and Daughters on Houston. Uh, and then further down here on Grand Street, there's also Kosar's Bialis. Yeah, Kosar's has been around since the 1930s, and they sell Bialis, which we've probably all heard of a bagel. A Bialy is another bread that came from Poland with Polish Jews, and it has a particular onion flavor. They have new ownership now, and it's this legitimate sandwich shop that is also kosher. So it's nice to have a kosher eatery back on the Lower East Side. And they also do bake bagels. They also do bagels. So they do pretzels. Bagel. They do the mm. onion loaf, which I knew, mm. know My you favorite, love. My favorite, onion loaf and onion disc. Oh, the Highly onion. recommended. Then, you know, until recently, because I lived uh, just a few blocks away down here on the Lower East Side from 1997 until just last year, and... For many of those years, there was the iconic Gus's Pickles on Essex Street, just a couple blocks up from me. They moved a couple blocks over, and then they closed a few years ago. However, you can still visit the Pickle Guys on Essex Street. One of the founders, Alan Kaufman, he worked for Gus's Pickles, and they're kind of keeping the tradition going. There would have been a pickle vendor on every street corner of the Lower East Side a century ago. But now they don't only just sell traditional Jewish pickles. One of their co-owners is a Chinese-American, and all of their employees are Dominican. So you can find things like pickled pineapple and pickled mango, some of their best sellers today. It's a really fun sort of visit. So that's the end of our tour today, Sarah. Where can we find you? Well, at another place you should stop out on the Lower East Side, the Lower East Side Tenement Museum. Thursday nights we do our sit-down dinner program, tastings at the tenement. Fridays and Saturdays is the walking tour, foods of the Lower East Side. And we're doing a special event on May 18th called Tenement Kitchens, where we're going to do a food tour and then a cooking class with me. So look out for tickets for that, uh, because it's going to be really, really fun. You can also be found on your blog, 4poundsflower.com. That is correct. And all social media at 4poundsflower. And I also have a book coming out December 6th with Simon & Schuster. It's called Eight Flavors, the Untold History of American Cuisine. Well, we look forward to that. Maybe we'll be speaking with you again before then. Thank you so much for joining us on our tour today. Such a pleasure. Let's do it again sometime soon. 
Thank you so much for joining us on this tour. Get out and visit these places and remember that you're supporting those businesses and supporting history in New York. There's so much more of it that's just waiting to be tasted. So have a great New York week. Whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.